In this episode of 9-2-I Talks, best-selling author Wes Moore discusses his new book, Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, with Willie Geist. When Freddie Gray was arrested for possessing an illegal knife in April 2015, he was, by eyewitness accounts that video evidence later confirmed, treated roughly as police loaded him into a vehicle. By the end of his trip in the police van, Gray was in a coma from which he would never recover. In the wake of a long history of economic inequality and racial injustice in Baltimore, this tragedy felt like a final straw. It led to a week of protests and then five days described alternately as a riot or an uprising that set the entire city on edge and caught the nation's attention. While attending Gray's funeral, Westmore saw every strata of the city come together, grieving mothers, members of the city's wealthy elite, activists, and the long-suffering citizens of Baltimore, all looking to comfort each other, but also looking for answers. Moore shares his perspective of the uprising and the events that followed leading up to today. The conversation was streamed live as part of the 92nd Street Wise online talk series on June 19, 2020. Hello, 92nd Street Y. My name is Willie Geist from NBC News, MSNBC's Morning Joe, and Sunday Today on the weekends. More importantly for our purposes here tonight, though, I'm an old friend of the great Wes Moore. He is the author of the new book, Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, about the death and the aftermath of Freddie Gray five years ago in the city where he grew up. And Wes is with us now. Wes, good to see you, my friend. It's so good to see you, Willie. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Always. I really appreciate you. I wouldn't miss it. We got a good crowd and I love the 92nd Street Y as I know you do and I've done a bunch of events there. So in my mind's eye, I'm gonna look out from that famous stage and just see a packed house <laughs> and hear thunderous applause for you from the rafters right now. So if I pause for applause, that's what I'm doing here. That, I, and I appreciate it. And honestly, the, the one regret I have is that we're not sitting there in just that, that fabled space I've been dreaming about it, but uh, but I'll, I still love being here with you virtually, though. Well, congratulations on the book. We're going to dive in deep. Uh, we were talking a minute ago, and we've talked recently about, I guess the word is timely, but yeah. what's happening in this country right now, this book, you can just lay it right over, and all these themes apply. Unfortunately, we've seen it too many times, but especially right now. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the book, and I think your background first, Wes, is really important as a son of Baltimore, why you took such particular interest in the case and the life of Freddie Gray. Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I remember when I was first hearing about this name, Freddie Gray, um, and, and there was something different about Freddie that really caught not just my attention, but frankly caught Baltimore, the state of Maryland, and, and, and the nation's attention. And it was something I always thought, like, what was so different about this? Because one thing that we had known was that inequitable policing was something that was just very common. And frankly, if you look at the two years before Freddie Gray, in Baltimore alone, there was Anthony Anderson, there was Chris Brown, there was Tyrone West. So all similar situations where you had unarmed black men that were killed either with you know, police interaction or in police custody. But there was something different about Freddie. And literally to the point, and I think what really kind of triggered off, uh, you know, what we started seeing was that I actually went to Freddie Gray's funeral. Um, and it was one of the first funerals that I'd ever attended in my life where I didn't know the person while they were alive. Um, I, I joined 
thousands of other Baltimoreans who went, many of whom have probably never known Freddie or spoken to Freddie while he was alive. Uh, and I started realizing that that was actually part of the problem, was my own complicity in all this, was the fact that, uh, that we had very serious and severe and significant issues when it came to policing, uh, lack of police accountability, you know, the fact that here was a 25-year-old young man who was literally guilty of the crime of making eye contact in poli with police in the wrong neighborhood, which was literally a crime, mm. um, and which is problematic in and of itself. Uh, but then is arrested, and an hour after he's arrested, he's in a coma. And a week after he's in a coma, he dies. And this leads to these weeks of protests that, uh, that eventually led me to this funeral. Of, of, a, of a 25 year old young man who frankly, when you think about his life, he never had a shot from Jump Street. Mm. And so all of this became so maddening in many ways about, uh, about what lesson had we learned or not, how quickly we were in a rush to move past and get back to normal without understanding how insufficient normal was. Um, and then I wanted to go on this journey of really being able to explore these days, these five days surrounding his funeral and look at it through the eyes of, of these many, many Baltimoreans who I thought really epitomized the, uh, the complexity of what exactly we were talking about, the complexity of race, the complexity of poverty, the complexity of, of policing, um, and, uh, and, and really try to look at it through, the, through this eye and this lens of taking a reader on this journey and letting them see for themselves uh, just that, uh, you know, not only do we have in that case an unnecessary killing, um, but also we had a lot of lessons learned that people just failed to continue to fail to pay attention to. Yeah, and I think it's, I want to walk through how you tell this story because I think it's a great literary device using the point of view of these eight Baltimoreans. Um, but I think it's important to establish your background too. I mean, people see you on TV these days, they see you do an event or an interview like this, and they see this incredibly impressive, polished man. And I mean that literally, you have a fine polish and that beautiful <laughs> tone. Of um, but man, it's been a long road and I'm it's not- all HD, it's all I'm, HD. <laughs> I'm not speaking out of turn. I think your mother said the same thing, that the guy who went on to become a Rhodes Scholar and a White House fellow and the guy who served in Afghanistan with the 82nd Airborne and the guy who's a best-selling author and the guy who's the CEO of Robin Hood, the biggest poverty fighting organization in the country, that guy didn't start out that way. Um, so what was Westmore like growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, and why did you connect to Freddie Gray? Yeah, you know, I, um, I, I, I thought about and I think about how all of our lives, including Freddie's um, and so many other kids that come up in Baltimore, where it's, the line is so thin between our life and someone else's life. Um, where, you know, I, I, I started my life down here. I'm in Baltimore now, still live in Baltimore. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I only have two memories of my father. And the first memory was when I was about four years old and uh, my mother had a bunch of rules in her house, but one of her big rules was that men do not put their hands on women. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized the reason that she was so insistent on that rule was because of her own past. Mm -hmm. And her being a, uh, a, a survivor, she always said, I will never tolerate that if I see it, and I especially will not tolerate it if I see it in my son. And I was fighting my older sister 
Um, and my mother, you know, went to break us up and my father uh, basically saved me from getting a beating that day. <laughs> and, he, and he spent time with me and told me, you know, what I was doing so wrong and why my job is to protect women, not to put my hands on them and protect my family and not to go after them. And he really was my protector. And the only other memory I have of him was about six months later when I watched him die in front of me. And my mother had a really difficult time with that, with that transition where now she unexpectedly and in an unprepared way really became a widow with three children that she was going to raise on her own. And one day she called up her parents, my grandparents who were living up in the Bronx and said that she needed help. And they gave her the answer she was hoping they would give, which is bring the kids up here and we can help. And that's how I went from down here in Maryland up to New York to go live up there with my grandparents. And it was one of these things where I dealt with a lot of frustration and anger and rage in a way that ended up, you know, the first time I felt handcuffs on my wrist was when I was 11. I ended up getting sent to military school when I was 13. Um, I, 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 uh, I was dealing with a lot. And in many ways, I felt like I was dealing with it on my own and my behavior demonstrated it. And I remember kind of going through this process and just thinking to myself, so what were the things that really made a difference where, where, and I remember when the Baltimore Sun, after I got the Rhodes Scholarship that you mentioned, I was 21 years old and the Baltimore Sun, which is my hometown paper, wrote this article about this local kid who just got an award, got this Rhodes Scholarship. And they talked about the fact that 10 years ago, he's in the back of a police car. 10 years later, he's now on his way to England on a Rhodes Scholarship. What happened over 10 years to create that, that shift and that change? And, um, and there's a lot of things that I think people can point to and correctly point to where it's, you know, you talk about the role of family or faith or education and all that kind of thing. But I think there's something that becomes really important too. And that was just the role of luck where I got some lucky breaks and I had people that were willing to actually believe in second chances and people that were willing to create pathways and people that presented opportunities to me and kept things from things that, that, that could have been you know, completely catastrophic and kept them from being such. And I thought about how unfair that is, that it's really oftentimes luck that can make a difference between one place or another place. And it made me think about Freddie because this was a, a person who was born premature, born underweight, born addicted to heroin. His mother battled addiction for much of her life. His mother lived in poverty her entire life. His mother never made it to high school. And when he finally gained enough weight, him and his twin sister, to actually leave the hospital, they moved to a housing project in North Cary Street over in West Baltimore. And uh, in 2009, that house and 400 others were actually named in a civil lawsuit because of the endemic levels of lead that was inside that house. And this, the CDC indicates that if a person has up to five deciliters, uh, uh, five, five microbes of, blood in every, uh, of lead in every deciliter of blood, that person could have cognitive damage for the rest of their life. Freddie Gray had 36. And so here was a person who was born underweight, premature, addicted to heroin, and lead poisoned. And by that time in his life, he's two. 
And so if, if, if luck is something that for many of us that we relied on to be able to even give us a path to something different, to give us a path to see something different, what about those who luck isn't even an option for them? How hard would Freddie had to have worked in order to change the destiny that we saw? Because the truth is, is that even before that last interaction with police, Freddie could have died a hundred times before. And that was the, that was the, that was the danger of the complicity of all of it, right? Is, is that, is that I, I felt that while my story oftentimes can be, you know, lifted up as a kind of like a celebration of what's possible. Um, it's missing that key ingredient and it's misses that, that, that piece that, but in order for that to even be real, it means so many other things have to actually be in place that weren't in place for Freddie, that aren't in place for so many other kids. And, and, and that is something that our entire society truly has to wrestle with. You've used the word complicity a couple of times, Wes, and the opening scene of the book is really striking. I said to you earlier, I didn't know you were at Freddie's funeral. Um, and you're there in the church on April 27th, 2015 at the New Shiloh Baptist Church. You find yourself in there. Yeah. You had to scoot out of there a little bit early. You paint an amazing scene of what's happening in the church, the power brokers in Baltimore, national figures, trying to get a piece of it. Um, and then you had to run and go to the airport that's right. And from the time you get up in the air to the time you land, Baltimore has changed. Yes. Um, so what has happened and why did all that make you consider your own complicity, as you put it? You know, I, um, when I landed, I, you're right, so I, I, I scooted out. I didn't, I didn't make the whole funeral. And I had to scoot out because I had to go to the airport. And I had to go to the airport because I had to give a speech in Boston on poverty. And so here I am, so I land and my phone is like, you know, cause you know, you turn your phone off when the plane takes off, you turn your phone back on as soon as, as, soon as you're able to get a signal. Yeah. And the phone is like buzzing, buzzing, buzzing. I'm like what in the world is going on? And then your mess, then the text messages are coming in, call when you can, call immediately. Are you okay? Da, da, da. And again, the, the first thing I'm, I'm seeing this and I, now I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Right. And I'm, then I go and you check your messages and you check the news. And the news is basically saying that, you know, literally at, while I was in the air, that a fight is starting to break out between kids and police officers. And then that initial thing that happened there uh, really turned into what we saw that entire Monday where right after Freddie's funeral, and this was the day that actually Freddie's family asked for no protests, no marches. They really wanted that day. They requested that that day be a day where they just wanted to lay their child, lay Freddie to rest. They asked for a pause in the protest. And then that was also the day though, that right outside of Frederick Douglass High School, which is one of the largest high schools over in West Baltimore, um, where kids and officers begin to square off. And that eventually led to where later on in that night, there was a, uh, the state of Maryland, the, the city of Baltimore was called into a state of emergency and the National Guard was actually called in because of the, because of the, uh, the uprising that was then taking place. You know, again, starting with children. And it was, it was, it was, I talk about, you know, kind of this idea of complicity because where, you know, one, I'm in, you know, I, I'm in Boston to give a talk about poverty where 
part of the reason that they invited me was partially because of the work that I was doing in the space and poverty work and that kind of thing. But also part of it was because there was this larger, you know, they wanted to celebrate your story, right? They wanted to talk, you know, here's, here's what happens when we work hard. Um, and, and, and the reality is, is that I, I realized the, the, the depth of incompleteness to that, right? And I, I thought about it where it's like, kind of like that starfish story where people throw the starfish back in the water, throw starfish back in the water, the person comes up and says, there's millions of starfish on the beach. You know, why do you think you're even making a difference? And the person picks up a starfish, throws it in the water and says, it made a difference to that one. And that's true. And there's a power to that story, right? There's a power of, of personal intention to that story. Um, it also though, doesn't ask the question about why there's so millions of starfish on the beach, right? And what happens to that starfish when it gets thrown back into the water? And so there's so many other elements to that, that I then that really being there in Boston, while parts of my city were on fire, really led me to have a real, um, a real sense of brokenness and impotence about what was actually going on. The same feeling where I was, as I was sitting in the chapel early that day with all the power brokers, everybody showed up to the funeral. Um, but the reality is you kind of sit there and you wonder, are, are, are any of us, any of us, are we willing to do what it takes to actually address why we're here today? And the issue that we're all seeing as to why we all had to come out on a Monday and get dressed up for the funeral of a 25 year old who shouldn't be dead. And that was a thing that I think really prompted me and, uh, and, and where I, I, I wrestled with. And I remember even having conversation with um, uh, a reporter, Erica Green, who I collaborated with on, on this book, who's a wonderful friend and wonderful reporter. And she was actually on the ground and I was asking her, you know, like, what was it like? And, you know, and, you know, she would talk about kind of like the, the chaos, but how in many ways, um, what we saw that Monday wasn't surprising to anybody. And she's right. So what West came out of that? The big question right now in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis is hear it over and over. Is this time different? Are we really going to change? Is there going to be real structural reform? Is there going to be policy reform? Are we going to change the way we talk about race? Are we going to change our corporate policies? All these massive questions that are out there. And the hope is that we keep this moment in front of us for a while so that we can grapple with all those questions without moving on to the next moment. Because it does feel like even as jarring as the Freddie Gray case was, as jarring as those protests were, how much actually changed in the city of Baltimore when you look at it and you investigate and you go through for the book? Was there real change out of that moment? No, and I, and I think one of, the, one of the heartbreaking things is that I think there was a, there were some operational things that had gotten done, right? I mean, police officers at that point had to wear, now wear body cameras and things like that. I mean, so there were some things like that, but I think there's also kind of a, a, a danger in that, that we're dealing with effects like their causes. Um, and there's a difference between cause and effect. When we watch inequitable policing and we watch these things that take place, we have to be clear, that's not a cause, that's an effect. And if the thing that comes out of this moment right now is just simply we ban chokeholds or we ban no-knock warrants, um, then we have really missed the point. The, the, the thing that I think we have to remember about all this stuff is that there's two things directly at play in this. One is the fact that this is about race 
and racism. And, and it, that's a really hard thing for the country to wrestle with because, you know, when people say that's a really tricky conversation, it's actually not. It's the trickiest. It's the trickiest conversation that this country wrestles with because of the amount of history involved in it, because of the fact that everything is interplayed in it. I mean, race is one of the most reliable predictors of life outcomes across several areas, uh, including life expectancy, academic achievement, uh, income, wealth, physical, mental health, maternal mortality. Uh, if, if socioeconomic difference explained these inequities, then controlling for socioeconomic status would eliminate them. But they don't, and it doesn't. That race matters in all of this because it's impossible to understand the levels of disparity without understanding the role that race played in the way of helping to craft it and construct it. If you look at how policies were then, you know, then pulled together, Baltimore is a perfect example. Baltimore was really one of the birthplaces of this thing called redlining, where literally houses were placed along racial lines and further complicating, and that, and that thing complicates everything from you know, net worth and value, the fact that, the fact that you know, right now, right now, Currently in the United States, you know, the average, the average African-American family has a tenth of the net worth of a white family. Now, no one can say that the average black family works, to, you know, or the average white family works 10 times as hard. That's because of structures that were put in place, discriminatory housing policy, discriminatory lending policy, the, in, the inequitable way that the GI Bill was even placed for, for black veterans that came back home after fighting overseas. And so the thing that, so when I think about the thing that I hope from this moment, is that we remember that this is not, the, the call for justice is not just simply about a call for justice for, for officers or the call for justice for, for Mr. Floyd. And there needs to be justice for that, to be clear. But it's also not even just a call for justice for policing reform and how we think about training and recruiting and funding and all that kind of stuff. But the call for justice must be complete. It's economic justice. It's health, it's housing, it's transportation. It's the, it's the, it's the reality that currently right now, uh, if, you, if you look at the look at dynamics, where an average African-American college graduate has the same earning power as a white high school dropout in this country. That's a fact, that is statistics. You know? And so these are things that we have to be able to, as a nation, truly wrestle with our reality uh, and there's not going to be a quick policing legislation that's going to move us past the point where we won't have to have this conversation in another year or three years or five years. There's deeper issues that I think this country has really got to wrestle with. And one of the big issues is the reality of race and how that matters in our everyday life. I think one of the big differences right now, as you know, is the openness of three quarters, if you look at polling of the culture to what the protesters are saying. Yeah. saying I, I'm with them, Let how do I help? What can I do? And I think that's how a lot of white people are feeling right now is like, there is injustice in this country. I know I'm part of the problem in some way. How do I change that? How do I help that? Because as you say, these are problems that go back 400 years, not a few years in a, in a couple of police departments. So, right. you know, if I cover Washington, you know, Washington is where things go to die. And even when I interview people, I say, what's the specific thing you're working on right now? You say you support the protesters, you say you support Black Lives Matter. What's the thing you're working on? And as you say, it's always 
chokeholds, no-knock warrants, those are good steps, but those aren't structural. Those are things that need to change and should change, but that doesn't change the foundation of the problem. So how do we as a country get at the foundation and not just work on the window boxes outside the house. Yeah, I uh, and I love that question because because I think there's there's a dynamic and there's a conversation going on about how do we become you know how do we become an anti-racist society, right? And I think for some people that's that's a, that's that's scary, right? Wait, what, what, what do you what do you mean anti-racist? Um, and I think the reason that it's scary is because I think for a lot of people th- there's there's a personal connotation, right? That it's like, it's like, you know, it's not about calling an individual, Mm. right? Being an anti-racist is just simply means going beyond being not racist to actively identifying beliefs and actions and policies that enforce racial inequities and then actively working to change them. So it really is the difference between being an observer and being an active pusher against it. And so I, and I, and I think it does come back to a common, um, you know, misconception that people sometimes have about racism that, you know, that they look at racism as an act where it's like, well, if, you know, I don't say the N word or I don't wear her, therefore I'm not racist. Um, without understanding racism is a system. Racism is a system that allows the kind of discrepancies that we had talked about before about how, uh, you know, an employer, there's a higher probability that an employer will hire a white person with a criminal record than a black person without one. Again, fact, data. Um, It's a system. And it's not meant to be personally interrogating uh, because that A is not going to get us anywhere and and, and B, it's actually going to force kind of a a shutdown. But it is about saying that we don't want to, you know, have this idea of an individual in diamonds. I, I want to put systems on trial. Systems that are actually allowing and putting people and keeping people in poverty that are allowing race to play such an important role in this. So I think that there's a couple things that we should really be thinking about, you know, both in terms of, you know, practical policies, but then also thinking about things uh, where there needs to be also kind of a, a, a psychological, uh, you know, a shift as well. You know, on, on the policy side, uh, I think it does matter that, you know, Dr. King once said, he said, you know, policies won't change, laws won't change the heart, but laws will protect me from the heartless. And I think there is a real truth to that, where how we think about everything from policing reform is going to matter when it comes to that idea of protection from the heartless. But it's also things about how are we making sure that we're providing people with proper platforms and avenues of, of approach and opportunities in the first place, right? I think about basic things like, you know, how do we make the child tax credit fully refundable? When you consider the fact that, uh, you know, over 50% of black and Latino children do not even qualify for the full benefit of a child tax credit, a tax credit that is intended to be able to support children in the most vulnerable situations. And over half of black children don't even qualify for it because of these little matrix and metrics that we put into place. And so there are things that we could do right now that essentially by even making the slightest adjustment on the child tax credit would end deep child poverty as we know it in the stroke of a pen and wouldn't even be cost prohibitive. But we also know that it's about how do we go about changing a psychology? And that's one of the reasons why I'm a, I'm a major proponent that this country needs to go through some form of a truth and reconciliation process and really deal with truth and trauma and reconciliation. 
And for people that think that that's a, you know, kind of a, a, a radical concept, the reality is it's not because actually we'd be following the lead of a lot of other nations that have already made it priorities. Wes, what do you mean by that for people who don't know specifically? Yes. So, so it, it really means the idea of being able to uh, have a process where we're able to own our own truth, acknowledge our own frailties and our own, and our own past injustices, and really use that as a baseline of how exactly do we move on. Part of the challenge that we're seeing right now is that for much of the country, there isn't even an understanding of what its past was. For example, I mean, today being, being Juneteenth, it's amazing for how many families, how many American families had no idea what Juneteenth was. Now for many black families, we had known Juneteenth and celebrated Juneteenth. You know, that's something we kind of came up knowing what Juneteenth was. But for America, there's been this idea of, a, of, a, of, of an awakening and a reckoning about, oh my gosh, you mean the Emancipation Proclamation didn't make everything right? No, it didn't, right? It was years after that before people were even notified that the Emancipation Proclamation even happened. And then after that, it was the creation of black codes. And after that was reconstruction. And after that, Jim Crow. And so it's important for people to understand that history and understand the fact that these discrepancies and these disparities that we're seeing right now, it's not because people didn't work hard enough. It's because these were systems and structures that were actively put in place to be able to cre create the levels of separation that we, that we saw. It shouldn't be ironic for anyone that, you know, it also happened the same time as Juneteenth was the birth of the Ku Klux Klan. So this is history and it's important for people to understand that as people are going, as for a nation to be able to move forward. And I think about when I talk about things like a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, South Africa decided that for them to move on from apartheid, it couldn't just be that, oh, we're gonna end apartheid. That wasn't gonna be enough. They actually had to go through a process of owning their history, owning their past. They had to go through a process of saying, we acknowledge what happened. And we're not just here to apologize, but we're actually here to say it's the only way we're gonna actively move forward. Chile did it, Northern Ireland did it, Canada did it, Colombia did it. Colombia, one, one of the most amazing things I saw when I was in, in, I was in Colombia, six months ago, and they have this place called uh, El Museo del Memoria. And it's a museum that was all, that was in Medellin, which by the way, two decades ago, was one of the, mo was the most violent city in the world, Medellin, Colombia. And 2015, it was named by the Wall Street Journal as the most innovative city in the world. And so you ask, how did you go from literally the most violent city to the most innovative city? And you saw how they were able to say, we've had an incredibly deadly past, but we also know that we can't be enslaved to it. And so I went to this museum and when you walk in, it was so beautiful, Willie. It was, had these, it was like, it was like almost like a constellation, right? Where you had these lights that would go on and off. It looked like stars. And as you got closer, you realized that they weren't lights. They were actually pictures that would flash on and off and the pictures would be in full color. And then out of nowhere, everybody would go dark with the exception of one person who would still be in color. That person who was in color is a person that either was killed or was missing. It didn't tell their story. It didn't tell what's, what side they fought on. It didn't tell what happened to them. It just reminded the person who was looking at this that that was a father or a son or a wife or a child, that that person mattered to somebody. 
And it mattered to the other people who were in that picture who was now blocked out. And there had to be a process that they, that Medellin said, for us to be able to move on, we can't just move on as if all this did not happen. For us to move on, we have to be honest, we have to own it, and we have to know that that's going to be a prerequisite for us to be able to become stronger. And so when I say that that's, those are things that our society has to do, our society has got to deal with this idea of truth and trauma. And our history is important, but the only way it will entrap us is if we allow it to, and is if we pretend like it didn't happen. And there's some of that starting now. I mean, if you look at places that had statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest, the founder of the Ku Klux Klan, looking up, wait a minute, why do we have that statue? And it took the death of George Floyd to make them come to terms with that. In Richmond, the statue of Robert E. Lee, obviously the Confederate general, been there for 130 years, suddenly people went, wait a minute, why do we have the guy who led the treasonous uprising against the United States government. And all those questions are starting to be asked. So maybe it's the beginning of some of that. Um, I want to I point out to everyone watching right now, we're going to open up the floor to your questions in about five or 10 minutes. If you have them, you can put them in the chat or you can go to participants at the bottom of your screen and I'll call on you and you can actually physically ask it. Um, I want to go back to the book, Wes, Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, incredible book about the death and aftermath of it, uh, Freddie Gray. And just talk about this way, the, the eight characters you, you kind of have woven together here. Tawanda Jones is a female activist whose um, brother actually was killed by police as well. John Andalos, family and the owner of the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, major Mark Partee of the uh, Baltimore Police Department, a black major in the department there. Greg Butler, a, a Baltimore son who became infamous during the Baltimore protests for puncturing a fire hose, if people remember that. Anthony Williams, the longtime operator of Shake and Bake Family Center. Nick Mosby, a black then Baltimore City Councilman who was born and raised in Baltimore. Jenny Egan, a young white public defender in the juvenile justice system drawn into the violent center of the uprising. And then Billy Murphy, the attorney who represented the family of Freddie Gray. Um, so you, you have these eight very different perspectives on what's happening in the city of Baltimore. How did you pick those eight voices? Why did you think it was important to look at it that way? Yeah, I mean, honestly, Willie, that was, that was actually one of the toughest things about it, because if there's one thing about the city of Baltimore, it is a, it is a city of characters. <laughs> and everybody has an opinion, everybody. And so, but, but you're, there's like, I'm swimming in all these opinions of folks, and everyone had their different ideas about what happened, and why did it happen, and so on and so forth. And so really getting it down to those eight was really hard. Um, but part of the reason why I love this assemblage of, of these characters, of these people, um, was not only do they tell such beautiful and detailed stories about what it was like over those five days, but all of them represent an important perspective where I feel like no matter where you are on this spectrum, you are going to find someone in this story who speaks to you. And you're going to find someone in that story that infuriates you, right? And that's humanity. That's, that's the way all this stuff works. And so whether it is you know, whether it is Tawanda Jones, who, uh, you know, who was really literally marching with the Gray family and is proud, she says, you know, I'm proud of the fact that Baltimore is standing up, is standing up to this. But also in the back of her mind, she's thinking, but where was this when my brother was killed by police? Mm -hmm. 
where every Wednesday, and literally she still does it to this day, every Wednesday, she protests. Sometimes she's literally by herself, but she will stand and protest every single Wednesday, demanding justice for her brother, who was killed in police custody. Or whether it was, you know, yeah, Major, Major Mark Partee, who grew up in West Baltimore. And, you know, and I remember him telling me, he's saying, I know for, I, I know, none of my colleagues woke up that morning with homicide in their mind. But I do know that for kids in West Baltimore, it's tough for them to believe that. Mm. You know, it's whether it's, it's Greg Butler, who was, who was this unbelievable basketball star uh, in Baltimore, who uh, literally cheated death countless times and now made his way to the fact that he got a college scholarship to go play basketball. And because of a glitch in the Baltimore City school system, record system, it ended up that he lost his scholarship. He had nothing to do with it. It was literally because of a glitch that happened within the Baltimore City system and lost his scholarship. And then he literally, he went from turning from basketball star into protester. And he's the one in the, he's the, uh, one in the iconic picture of Time Magazine wearing the gas mask with his fist in the air. Uh, you know, whether it is John Angelos, you know, the, the son of the owner, the head of baseball operations, who found himself thrusted into the middle of all this, where literally when the Baltimore Orioles played the Chicago White Sox on the fifth day, uh, and they played with an official, for the first time ever in baseball history, they played an official game and the attendance was zero. Mm -hmm. And the reason the attendance was zero was because Baltimore is still in the middle of a state of emergency and no one was allowed out. And they played the game with no fans. First time ever in baseball history. And John Angelos was at the was at the at the at the at the, the tip of the spear of that decision to be made because as he said, I want the world to see this. And so watching how all these various characters play together and almost have these crash moments was really, really interesting and powerful to me. Anthony Williams, who, you know, who was a GM at Shake and Bake, a place that I went to ever since I was 13 years old. And I used to love Shake and Bake. Uh, but, but how he was really a community leader and how you know, there's, a, there's actually a really powerful scene in the, in the, in the book when, when that Monday night he actually left to go home and, uh, and didn't know really what happened the night before. When he woke up the next morning, that's when he started seeing all the footage of all the uprising that took place the night before. And he saw that all of it was happening right around his shop. And he gets a phone call from his Gloria, who's a neighbor, and she's like, you would be so proud of your boys because Anthony always hires people who no one else would hire. And he was deliberate about it. The people with the records, the ones with the tattoos, the ones who were justifiably very angry with the world because that was him. And he knew that Shake and Bake gave him a chance. And so for the past 20 years, he led Shake and Bake. And those were the only kids that he would hire. And when everything was happening that night after he had already gone home, and there was fires being set to buildings all around Shake and Bake. He found out from his Gloria that it was his kids, the ones who no one would hire, who locked arms in front of Shake and Bake and told the people who were coming down the street, they said, you're not coming in here. Hmm. And they protected his store. I loved this confluence of all of these different stories and how they told a bigger story, how they told a bigger story about a, a, a city that was very much on edge because of a, of a death that shouldn't have happened, 
but how you watch all these disparate perspectives and people who would have never had a reason to be able to interact, but how this very, this very explosive moment brought them all together. And it was one of the really powerful things that I know, and you know, even you know, working with Erica, wanted to see how it's like, how do we tell these stories in a way that you can walk the reader through it? Because I really wanted them to see it through their eyes, through the eyes of these eight people to understand why this moment meant so much and why there was a true hope that people would understand what we're supposed to do next. It's such an interesting way to do it. And it, it offers so many different points of view and gives so much humanity to the story. The same way you do going back through Freddie Gray's life. We were talking at the beginning about this book being timely, which it undoubtedly is. And you made the point earlier that the tragedy is it would be timely almost whenever you put it out. The book comes out officially on Tuesday. Uh, in the middle of all that we're seeing in the streets right now. But if you put it out a couple of months ago, it would have been somebody else. If you put it out last week, it would have been Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. The list goes on and on. Um, and that's, to me, that's the tragedy, that this story is timely always. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a horror in the timeliness, right? Because the question does become, when wouldn't it be timely? Name a time when this story would not have been timely. And that's... That's the horror because, you know, we, whether it's the name Richard Brooks or whether it's the name George Floyd or whether it's the name Ahmaud Arbery or whether it's the name Tamir Rice or whether it's the name uh, uh, Breonna Taylor or whether it's the name Laquan McDonald or whether it's the name Amadou Duallo or whether it's the name Sean Bell or whether it's the name Eric Gardner. I mean, these are names, but they're human beings. And that's the danger of all of this, is that we continue watching this, these litany of names that just continues to, to, to haunt us, but not enough. They haunt us, but just not enough. And that's the danger. I'm gonna open it up, Wes, to some questions. You'll forgive my tech skills here. I'm gonna do my very best. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. Better than I am, man. Eh? I don't know about that. Um, Okay, I see a hand up from Jane. So Jane, I'm gonna call on you. Let's see if you pop up. Um, if this doesn't work the way I'd planned, then we might just have to go that. Hi, I think I'm unmuted. Oh, great. So it says Jane, but uh, I'm her husband, Frank, and I had to call. <laughs> oh, Frank. <laughs> Frank. Floor is yours, Frank. Thank you. So Wes, I first uh, became familiar with your work uh, in reading The Other Wes Moore and was completely impressed. Thank you. Um, I also yes. work for, yes. <laughs> I also work for bed Restoration. Yes. Been a uh, big supporter and a, a big uh, help to restoration, which we're all indebted to you and your organization. They're, they're, no, listen, we're, we're, we're indebted to Bedside Restoration. It's a great organization. And, and Rob, Robin Hood is, is very, very proud uh, to be, uh, you know, just to, to help in any way that we can. It's a great group. Well, good. I'll let everybody back home know that. <laughs> um, so my concern about what's going on today, you know, I'm a child of the 60s, spent a lot of time in civil rights struggle and Vietnam struggle and women's rights struggles. And I feel like my life's been a continuation of struggles uh, in, in this country, fighting for what's right. <clears throat> do, you, do you feel 
like this is a moment where at least some things structurally will look different a year from now than they looked a year ago because of because of the way people are coming together. And I, and I applaud it and I love it and I'm excited by it. But do you think it's a ripe time? Yeah, I, um, so first, thank you. Thank, thank, uh, thank you, Frank, and thank you, Jane, as well. Um, so for me, I can tell you right now that hope springs eternal. Um, I am hopeful. I am hopeful that this moment will be, will be different. And, and, there, and there, the truth is, is, I know there might be some people who are saying, well, show me any evidence. I mean, like your book is about something that happened five years ago that we're just going through again. So tell me where your hope comes from. Um, my hope comes from a few different places. Most importantly, my hope comes from history. You know, I... Um, the fact that we're having this conversation here on, on, on Juneteenth is important to me because I think Juneteenth is, is not just a, uh, an, an acknowledgement of the end of something. It really is. It's, it's, it's the hope of a promise of something else, right? It's the hope of a promise that we actually can be better and we can actually create a society that welcomes everybody and that understands that we're not asking to have a, a post, uh, you know, a post-racial environment, but more so a post-racist environment, right? And I, and I think about the things that we had to go through as a nation before and the work that it took for us to be better, where at every single critical juncture in our history, it's been uneven. We've had pain, but we forced it to be better. And I feel like this is going to be one of those moments where, where the idea of inevitable progress is bunk. It's just not true. There's never been inevitable progress. There's been forced progress. There's been progress that we've made it so. But there's never been something where we kind of just all sat back and said, I just know things are going to get better. That's not how history has worked. And so I think about the fact that we are now having a conversation in ways that we haven't had a conversation in years before. You know, I, I, think, about, I think about the fact that, you know, if you just think about just a few years back, where if I told you names like, Alicia Garza, and I told you names like Patrice Cullors, and I told you names like, you know, Opal Tometi, that these would be people who wouldn't be seen as, 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 as uh, pariahs or people that they were attacked, that there are people who will really now be seen as visionaries. By the way, for those who don't know, those were the three black women who started Black Lives Matter. Three black women who, after the death of Trayvon Martin, said, for some reason, I feel like we have to remind this country that black lives matter. And I remember when Black Lives Matter first started, there were literally people calling them a terrorist organization. A terrorist organization. Now, we've got every corporation in America running to, to put Black Lives Matter in their mission statement. Think about that. 
Think about the courage that it took for those three women to stand up and make a statement that for so much of this country seemed threatening. And then now to have their validation that the entire country is now looking at it and saying, I get it. The courage that it took for them to be able to lead that charge. And so I have no choice but to be hopeful. First of all, I don't know what the alternative is, and the alternative is not good enough for me. But I also know that it doesn't take looking that far into history to know that we have an opportunity for progress if we seize it, if we're willing to be courageous, if we're willing to be thoughtful, if we're willing to be brave. And I think the thing that we want to know that, that right now we have such a unique opportunity to not just nibble around the edges on so much of this stuff. When we're watching the, you know, how between COVID-19 and between the things going on now, you know, we've had a hell of a 2020. But I think one of the things that this 2020 has also shown is that we cannot move forward collectively because whether it was watching the disparate impact that COVID-19 has had on black and brown communities or whether it's the disparate impact of, of policing inequities have had, we cannot move forward if we're not willing to not just deal with the effects, but deal with the cause. And that is actually the, what this moment is calling for. That is what this moment, that's the courage that this moment is calling for. And it's, and it's beautiful to see the fact that we're now able and willing, and it seems like preparing ourselves to go into the hard, to go into the ugly, to go into the uncomfortable, but to know that being there is the only thing that's gonna make us better and stronger at the end of this process. And so that's why I am hopeful and that's why I'm gonna stay there. Frank and Jane, thanks guys. Um, Wes, one of the, you mentioned that a lot of people probably didn't even know it was Juneteenth until it started getting all this attention. Of course, the president of the United States yesterday said he made it famous. Nobody ever heard of it until he started. We'll put that to the side for a moment. But appreciate that. When I grew up, I didn't learn about the Tulsa massacre. I didn't learn about these things. So one of the questions we have in the chat comes from a teacher in uh, suburban New Jersey. Uh, the username is Atriglia. Uh, he or she asks, how do we make a lasting change to our curriculum so our students not only learn Black history in every area of our curriculum, but also understand it and understand what it means and how everything needs to change? It's a great question from a teacher. Such a good question. All these questions are so good, by the way, y'all. This is great. Um, and so first, I'll, I'll do it from a structural, because I'm a nerd, and I love this. <laughs> and then we'll go into the absolute practical and the, and the why, right? So first on the how, then on the why. First on the how, one of the beautiful things about the Constitution is that education is actually one of the few things in the Constitution that's actually not federally controlled, right? It's actually states that have more control over it. The only th real thing that the, that the Department of Education really has kind of a lot of jurisdictional authority over is, is budget. And that's why even things like some of the biggest initiatives that we've had from recent administrations, whether it was Race to the Top, whether it was No Child Left Behind, those weren't necessarily curriculum mandates. There were budgets. There were how much money can get allocated to individual states. And so one of the beautiful things about the constitutional structure is really innovative states can actually make a lot of fundamental changes to a curriculum without having to worry, without people worrying about, oh, or using the excuse of, oh, Congress. Congress has nothing to do with it. Congress has no authority. 
So if your concern is, oh, well, Congress is just going to block it, don't worry about it, not on this issue. Because this is actually something where states have full jurisdictional authority as to how they're thinking about it, both in terms of you know, how they're using everything from STEM and science, technology, engineering, math, how they can tailor curriculum towards what are the industries of the future in that individual state. And also, it's about what are we asking our kids to learn. One of the most powerful things that happened to me when it, comes to my, when it came to my educational journey, truthfully, it, it, it was not just uh, you know, a, a, a passion for the Constitutional Congress or me learning trigonometry or geometry or all these things that I use now to this day. Some of the most powerful things that happened to me on my educational journey was when I learned about names like Paul Robeson. And when I learned about names like Sojourner Truth, when I learned about names like Malik Shabazz, when I learned about names like James Baldwin, those were some of the most important educational lessons that I learned because in many ways they contradicted so much of the other things that I was learning. That in some ways, that what the things that I was learning was that somehow that my history, my culture, was one of a deficit perspective, where the first thing that I learned about black people in this country was about slavery. Let's think about what that does psychologically. When the first thing that you're learning about your history was about its enslavement. And so some of the most powerful things that didn't just guide me then, but also guide me now, and push, didn't just push me then, but push me now, was the moments when I learned and the moments when I truly understood that I come from the blood and I come from the DNA of people like Baldwin and people like Hughes and people like Marshall. That was my rocket fuel because it helped me to understand that there was never ever going to be a room that I was in that I didn't belong in and that I would put my legacy and my lineage up against anybody else's when I think about the brilliance and the greatness that came from there. And so I think, it's, I think thinking about curriculum adjustment and what we're learning, why we're learning it, is gonna be incredibly important. And again, not even just to that black child who's trying to understand and really embrace their worth, but frankly, to every child who needs to understand the worth of the children around them. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of one of these things where, where, where I, you know, I, I think to myself and, and people, when people say to me, and I understand why it's said, and I understand it's coming from a poem place, but I just ask people to understand what I hear. But when people say to me things like, you know, I don't, I don't see color. To me, what I hear when I hear people say that is, I don't see your blackness, but it's not a deficiency. It's not something I should be ashamed of. I want people to see and understand and appreciate my history. I want people to see and appreciate the contributions that we've made to this country, that this country, that we didn't, we built this thing together. And so I should own as much pride as anybody else. And I should own as much, and I have as much of, an, of a vested interest in its future 
as anybody else. And I think part of that just, part of that has to be the responsibility of how the state is teaching its kids, how our schools are coming up with platforms for our kids to understand their worth and the worth of other people around them. And I think it's going to be one of the most powerful things that we can do to not just change systems, but how we change psychologies in this world. And again, it's something that we can do. You do not have to wait for any congressional mandate to do it. We can do it, and we need to. We have time for one more question, Wes. This one's from Odette Noble. Um, I think I know your answer to this question, but I'll broaden it out. It is, should Joe Biden and the Democrats promise to create a Truth and Reconciliation Bureau? Should they take a look at this? You've said we need that. Yes. Um, you, can, you can hit that side of it, but also more broadly, what do you want to see from a Biden administration when they get into office that's not just lip service to get elected? What's the concrete step you want to see? Yeah. And, um, and so, so first, so first on, the, on, the, on the TRC, the answer is, 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 is yes and. I think that this is something that the, that, that the government should be able to be involved in. Because um, I think it's the same thing we have seen in other countries where, where it wasn't just private philanthropists that will do it, even though I actually do think that private philanthropists actually have a very important role to play in this. I think that everybody has a role to play in this. I think this should be a combination of private, public, philanthropic, and the people. I think all four sectors need to have involvement in this because I think all four sectors need to understand their responsibility, both in owning the history, but then also helping us to move forward. Um, but I do think that the government does play a role and should play a role. Um, it should not just be, but it shouldn't be the only role. Uh, I think these other entities actually have a role to play in it as well. When I think about, uh, you know, how the, the, some of the first things that we have to be able to think about as an administration, and, and, I, and, I, and I really hope and I pray that we take this seriously. I think that COVID-19 really exposed a lot about our society and it exposed a lot about the vulnerabilities that still naturally exist within our society. Um, when we think about, and I think I, I can even just look at a couple stats that came out of there that expose what I'm talking about. That 23% of people who lost their jobs due to COVID-19 were people who were living in poverty already. So think about what I just said. 23% of people who lost their jobs were already living in poverty. That means they were the working poor. The people who were working jobs, in some cases, multiple jobs, and still living below the poverty line. I think one commitment we have got to make that is if a person is working a job, if a person is working a full-time job and working full hours, there is no reason that that person should exist in poverty, period. And we have to make that a fundamental pledge that no one who is existing in that space, putting in the work, doing everything they're being asked to do, for many of them are essential workers and still existing in poverty. We also have to understand that when we're thinking about healthcare, where you know, part of the thing that we're seeing is since we've watched a, this, this massive growth in unemployment, um, and we talk about this growth in unemployment where literally we've watched 11 years of job growth go away in 11 weeks. That's the level of the devastation of not just the health devastation, but the economic devastation you know, that we've seen due to, due to COVID-19. Um, we have to be able to say that 
And, and by the way, that also means we've watched a lot of people who were formerly covered, who now have no coverage at all. The idea of having a healthcare system where so many people are now being left so unbelievably vulnerable is not just dangerous for them. Frankly, it's dangerous for our entire society and it's gonna be incredibly expensive for our entire society. We have to once and for all have a very real conversation about and, and very real action around what are we doing to make sure that people are getting covered and what are we doing to make sure that these individual singular shocks are not enough to completely send them and their families into a tailspin that's going to create this measure of generational poverty that we then have to exist in. And I think we also have to think about what are we doing to be able to support the most vulnerable in our society. We know that the greatest thing that we can do to, to present the greatest return on investment that we're gonna have is finding ways to support children. It's finding ways to invest in kids early. It's finding ways to invest in early childhood education, finding ways to support kids. And we also know that, that, the, that the child tax credit is America's largest policy for children and it provides a $2,000 credit per child to help families with expenses for their children. We also know that it is incredibly unequal the way that it is laid out. We also know that nearly one in five black children do not receive any credit at all. And the next administration has got to think about what are we doing? When I'm thinking about a, a, a simplified, a list of the asks, how are we going to advance a child tax credit to pay it out in monthly installments? How are we going to increase benefit amounts to support children and families through the economic downturn? How do we lock in improvements until the economy recovers to make changes that are retroactive to deliver cash quickly to children and families who need it most. We know the things that are going to quantifiably matter. And the thing that I, that I want from how we're thinking about policy and policymakers going forward is we have to do a better job of protecting our most vulnerable. We have to deal with so many of the structures that we talk about when everything from how we think about policing and housing and all these other elements. But fundamentally, I want to I want an administration to look at everything that they do through a lens of what does this mean to the most vulnerable? And if that's the lens that you're looking at your work through, then we're doing the right thing. If that's not your lens, then I pray that you find something else to do because we need people and serious people who are willing to delve into these issues and who are gonna to work to make us better. I think everyone on this call would like to nominate you for that job, but I think that's good for a few years. <laughs> I see the applause going all over the place. Frank, Jane, everybody's applauding. But I've been pushing that on you for years, so I won't do it in public here. But uh, man, that, that hour flies by when you're listening to brilliance like that. Wes, this is so much fun. Um, the book is Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City. It's out Tuesday, but you, of course, can pre-order it now, so it lands in your mailbox on Tuesday. I'm sure to be his next bestseller. He does such great work with Robin Hood as the CEO, but most of all, his best work, his wife Dawn and his beautiful children, Mia and James, who are the best and who used to live in our building and we miss you guys so much. And we miss you, we miss Lucy, we miss Georgie, we miss Christina, we miss all y'all, man. Seriously, Willie, I love you. When, and, and you know, it's, it's, I'll just say one thing about Willie right quick. When one of the most common things I always hear about Willie uh -oh. is when you meet people who ask about Willie, they're like, is he really, is, is, he, is he that great? <laughs> and my answer is always the same. He's even better. Oh. Willie, you are, not just, you are not just 
an unbelievably dear friend. You are an example to me in every definition of the word. I love you and I'm thankful for you, man. Always will be. I appreciate that. Good luck with the book. You don't need it. I'll see you on Morning Joe on Tuesday. So see you on Tuesday. We'll talk again then. Thank you, 92nd Street Y. Thank you, everybody, for spending part of your Friday night with us. It was a blast. We'll do it again in person sometime on that stage. In the meantime, pick up Wes's book and thanks for tuning in tonight. Good night, guys. Have a good weekend. Good thanks, Wes. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92y.org archives.